Hebrews chapter 8, if you haven't opened your Bibles there yet. But the following exercise that we're going to do is not a litmus test for determining whether your marriage is healthy or unhealthy. So please don't come to that conclusion. There are no right or wrong answers with what we're about to do. And there's no shame and there's no embarrassment that should come to any of you. But please indulge me by answering a few questions. And if you're really free in the gospel this morning, please raise your hand when answering these questions. Question number one, have you ever sent a text message to your spouse? Okay, you should be free in the gospel. Raise your hand for that. Question number two, have you ever FaceTimed or Skyped with your spouse? Okay, we might narrow the field with this next one. Question number three, have you ever sent a text message to your spouse while you were both in the house? Oh, wow, look at that. What a lazy people we are. That's a lot of hands. I really thought we'd narrow the field with that one. We might with this one. Question number four, have you ever FaceTimed your spouse while you were both in the house? Anybody free in the gospel? Look at those hands. Heather and I have done both of those last two things. We've texted and FaceTimed each other when we were both in the house. Now, I don't know if that should be filed under lazy or convenient, but we have totally done both of those things. Technology is great. It's one of the ways that we communicate with each other. So Heather and I can send sweet little texts back and forth throughout the day, and we do because of technology. And we can text each other things like, when we're at the grocery store, don't forget to pick up blank. So I'm a big fan of using technology to communicate with my wife, and we do it with our kids too. We text them and we FaceTime them. We love technology. They love technology because they get to FaceTime my parents who live in Oklahoma. So my kids love it when they get to see Granny and Papa on FaceTime. And we have one spunky little child who shall remain nameless who's four years old and has curly hair like Shirley Temple. And she loves to hog the camera when we FaceTime Granny and Papa. But my kids love to see Granny and Papa on FaceTime. We get to talk with them because of technology. But my kids would rather be at Granny and Papa's house. They'd rather be running through their backyard, swimming in the little swimming pool that they set up. They'd rather have Papa spray them and chase them with the water hose. They would rather my mother cook them a good old southern breakfast of biscuits and gravy with a side glass of sweet tea. They'd rather be with Granny and Papa not stare at them through some screen. And of course, I would rather be with my wife than looking at her through some screen. And I assume that's the case for all of you too. You'd rather be with your loved ones than stare at them through an iPad. And if you'd rather FaceTime your spouse and have the FaceTime version of your spouse, and please don't raise your hand right now, But if you'd rather have the FaceTime version of your spouse, then please contact one of the pastors so we can work on some counseling. If you really would rather have the FaceTime version of your spouse, then you're just like the Hebrews. 
the Hebrews were being tempted to leave Jesus and to return to the types and shadows of the old covenant. They wanted to go back to the copies. They wanted to return to the priests that they were familiar with. with they wanted to return to the temple and to the sacrifices and to celebrate the feasts and the festivals. They wanted to leave Jesus and go back to FaceTiming Jesus. They wanted the copy and not the real thing. They simply lost their awe of Jesus. So let me ask you another question this morning. Have you lost your awe of Jesus? Have you become dull of hearing like the Hebrews? See, that's what sin does. It causes each and every one of us to lose our awe of Jesus. Sin makes promises that it cannot deliver on. And when we indulge, we eventually wake up one day to find that we really aren't satisfied. So what I want to do today is to help give you your awe back. I want to do what the preacher of Hebrews is doing in this passage and point you back to Jesus so that you can get your awe back. I want to tell you about Jesus. And I am praying that the Spirit of God would come and recapture all of our hearts again so that we would leave here today in awe of Jesus. I don't want us to be a church that just FaceTimes Jesus, that we'd rather FaceTime with Jesus than really spend time with him. I don't want us to be a church that merely knows a lot about Jesus, a church that FaceTimes him, but doesn't really want to be with him. And so our big idea today is really just a prayer. It's a prayer that I pray that you would pray throughout this sermon today, And that it would become a prayer that becomes a regular part of your life. And here it is. It's simply this. Don't let me lose my wonder. I want you to pray that throughout this sermon. I want you to pray that you would not lose your wonder of Jesus. We know that God uses means. And one of the means of grace is prayer. So what I want you to do right now is to take a few seconds And just pray those six words to Jesus. Don't let me lose my wonder. Let's do that. Heavenly Father, even at the beginning of this sermon, we are asking you to send your Holy Spirit that we would not lose our wonder of your Son, but that we would leave here today smitten by him. And loving him more. Would you do that for your glory and for our joy, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't let me lose my wonder. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, and hear the word of the Lord. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And so the point that the preacher of Hebrews has been trying to make this whole time is that Jesus is our high priest. He's our merciful high priest. He's our uh, faithful high priest. He's a, he's a great high priest. And as he mentioned at the very end of chapter 7 that we saw last week, he is holy. He is 
innocent. He is unstained. He is separated from sinners. He is exalted above the heavens. In other words, what he's trying to get the Hebrews to understand is that Jesus is nothing like the earthly priest of the old covenant. The priests under the old covenant were sinners. They had to offer sacrifices for their own sins before they could offer sacrifices for the sins of the nation of Israel. And the Hebrews wanted to go back to that. And so the preacher is trying to show how ridiculous it is to continually go back to sinful priests who have to continually offer sacrifices for their own sins before they can continually offer sacrifices for your sins. And so his point is that we have a high priest who did not have to offer any sacrifices for his own sin because he had no sin. But this is all that the old covenant priests were occupied with. I mean, it was a staggering number. When you think about the feasts and the festivals, everything, it was a slaughterhouse. Church, if you will, was a bloody slaughterhouse. Listen to these statistics. Uh, Every day you had to offer the nation of Israel, the priests had to offer on behalf of the nation, an offering in the morning and then one in the evening of a, a lamb or a ram or something. Every day during the Feast of Tabernacles, they would offer up to uh, 30 animals. And we'll kind of descend down a few of those. So about 189 animals were offered during the Feast of Tabernacles. At the beginning of every month on that day, they would offer 11 sacrifices that day, not to mention the morning and evening sacrifices. During the Feast of Unleavened Bread, daily, 11 sacrifices were offered. During the Feast of Weeks, daily, 13 plus sacrifices were offered. During the Feast of Trumpets, 10 sacrifices a day. On the Day of Atonement, 13 sacrifices were offered. These were offered just for the nation in general, not to mention how many individual worshipers were making their way to the temple to, or to the tabernacle before the temple was built to offer sacrifices. So it was a slaughterhouse. And then you hear about our great high priest, Jesus, who offers himself once, one time. And so Jesus' high priestly ministry stands in stark contrast to the old covenant priests. And part of that contrast is that Jesus sat down. He sat down on the job. He rested. He rested at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. This is very important for us to understand because under the old covenant, there were no seats in the temple or in the tabernacle. The priest under the old covenant offered sacrifices for sin every day because the problem of sin had not yet been solved. And so they never stopped working. They never got to sit down on the job. Why? Because sinners kept sinning. That's what sinners do. That's what we do. We sin all the time, and we're good at it. And even though we know that sinners sin, what do we say to our kids when they're mean to their siblings? Why did you do that? There's always only one answer. It's because of sin. And so these priests never stopped working because people were always sinning. They had the ultimate in job security. can't fire me. If you fire me, you'll sin, and then you need me to sacrifice for you. So you need me. The ultimate in job security. They were guaranteed a job, but they never got to sit on the job. There were no chairs in the break room. 
They didn't even have a break room, and so they never stopped. They never sat down on the job. They clocked out at the end of the day when their shift was over, but another priest replaced them, and so they never stopped. But when Jesus came, he was the true priest that all of these Old Covenant priests prefigured. In fact, the entire Old Covenant sacrificial system, from the sacrifices to the utensils to the, the furniture to the priests, they were all pointing to Jesus. And when Jesus offered himself, he did it one time. And he did it as the sacrifice for our sins. And then he sat down. Why did he sit down? Because it was finished. Because there are no more sacrifices to be made. Jesus paid it all once for all. He finished the work of redemption that he came to do. He finished the work that God the Father sent him to do. And then he rested. He sat down. He sat down and he rested so that we might rest from all of our working and striving to gain God's favor and his blessing. Jesus rested, having accomplished all that his father gave him to do so that we wouldn't wear ourselves out trying to please God and somehow earn his favor or his blessing. And that's exactly what the Hebrews were struggling with because they were being tempted to go back under the law in order to be justified. They wanted to go back under the old covenant in order to to gain God's favor, to gain his blessing. They wanted more law and less grace. They wanted to do more and to try harder to gain God's love, his acceptance, his blessing, his favor. And so the writer of Hebrews is once again reminding the Hebrews that Jesus is better than the old covenant. He's letting them know that Jesus sat down after making propitiation for sin. That's something no Old Covenant priest could ever do. As verse 1 says, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. Even if the Old Covenant priest could sit down still, they're sitting down, but where are they? On the earth. But where is Jesus seated? At the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. John Piper says this, The sitting down in this place of preeminence and honor and authority and power was a declaration of how perfect was Christ's work of purification of sins. Christ was fitted for this place of honor by the fullness and perfection of his sin-bearing work for us. And then he says this, I pray that you will embrace this precious biblical reasoning. This is meant to make you strong and unshakable against the terrible temptations to doubt that your sins can be forgiven. The resurrection and the enthronement of Christ to the right hand of God is meant to make you confident in the hour of trial and in the hour of death that the purification of your sins is sure and real and sufficient to give you entrance to heaven. Don't take lightly this biblical reasoning. Christ reigns today in heaven because he made purification of sins once for all. And I pray that today you'll never stop praying this prayer. Don't let me lose my wonder. I'm praying today that you find yourselves in moments throughout today where you just simply cry out to God and say, don't let me lose my wonder of Jesus. Don't let me lose my wonder of your son. 
We're dealing with such weighty, heavy things in the gospel, such good news, and we preach it every week here at Grace. And How easy is it for that message to become old hat for us? To to deal with the the weightiness and, and the glory of this truth and then to just treat it lightly and not to be flabbergasted that God loves sinners and welcomes them into his presence. Pray, God, don't let me lose my wonder of this truth. That's what happened to the Hebrews. They lost their wonder. They lost their awe of Jesus. And they were experiencing persecution. They were being pressured by Jewish friends and families to return to their roots, to return to what they were familiar with. And what did they need? They needed to see Jesus again. They needed to get their awe back. Listen, I have no doubt in my mind that persecution is coming to America. It's just a matter of time. I'm not a prophet. I could be wrong. I might not see it in my lifetime, but I think I will see it in my lifetime, and probably it will go beyond that. And part of my job as a pastor is to prepare you for times of suffering and persecution. Part of my job is to point you to what will sustain you when suffering and persecution come your way. And what sustains us in those moments? Is it messages that you've heard on how to be a good neighbor or seven steps to being a better husband or wife? Is that the message that's going to sustain you? Or when you get the news that you have cancer, do you want to call one of the pastors here and say, tell me again seven ways I can be a good neighbor? You want to see a picture of Jesus, the glorious king, reigning on his throne, sovereign over every detail of your life. That's what you need in those moments. And that's what we need in that moment if persecution comes to our country. We don't need the bells and whistles. We can make this stage bright and shiny and have these lasers shooting forth and fog machines like some churches do. But is that going to get you through the persecution and the suffering that comes when they start dragging Christians off to concentration camps? Is that what you need? Give me some lasers and fog machines so, so I can feel something. What you need in that moment is seeing Jesus in his white hot glory saying, I died for your sins and if they kill you, you'll come be with me. Isn't that what we need? It's not about being the coolest, hippest church in town. It's about what message is being proclaimed, what person is being preached so that you can stand in the day and the hour of trial. So that you can say, chop my head off. You're just doing me a favor. Sorry, I'm getting worked up. What sustains us in those moments? The answer is not you. The answer is not your resolve to stand firm. It's Jesus. And keeping Jesus before your eyes is what will help to strengthen you if those days come. Awe and wonder of Jesus is what will give you the courage to face whatever you face in this world. That's what happened with Isaiah. Assyria was about to pounce on Israel. The Assyrians were wicked. They would chop people's heads off and put them in these big piles and put them up on sticks and poles and celebrate how 
how much of, of a slaughterhouse their, their nation was, how powerful they were, and the Assyrians were threatening Israel. And what does Isaiah see? It's not seven steps to be a better prophet, Isaiah. It's, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his glory filled the temple. That's what he needed to see. Not three ways to be a better prophet or have better messages so that people will listen. What will give you the courage? Seeing Jesus in his glory. Paul Tripp says, I think we are motivated by fear, worry, dread, and anxiety much more than we realize. The decisions we make and the actions we take are motivated more often by avoiding what we fear than by the courage of faith. Courage results not from trusting yourself, other people, or your circumstances. All these things will fail you. Courage results from being in awe of the majesty of God. That worshipful fear that grips your heart when you are confronted with his holy grandeur. Because you are in awe of who God is and because you know that this awesome one is in you, with you, and for you, you do not live in fear of people, locations, and situations. That's exactly what the Hebrews needed to hear. They needed to hear again that Jesus is our priest. They needed to hear again that Jesus is our king. And that's why at this halfway point in his sermon, the preacher reminds them again, like he did at the very beginning in chapter 1, verse 3, he reminds them again that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. Halfway through his sermon, he circles back around to remind the Hebrews that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's redirecting their attention to Jesus where he sits as their high priest at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. Now what did he tell them about that majestic throne back in chapter 4? Chapter 4. Verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why FaceTime Jesus when you can boldly approach his throne? Why FaceTime him? FaceTime him. Why, why keep him at a distance, just kind of, kind of on the perimeter of your life? See, under the old covenant, that's what they had to do. They had to FaceTime Jesus in the courtyard. The high priest would only go into the Holy of Holies once a year. They had to stay out in the courtyard. They couldn't even go to the inner part let alone the Holy of Holies. So the worshipers had to stay outside and kind of FaceTime Jesus and FaceTime with the high priest as he went in once a year. And the Hebrews are saying, you want to go back to that, not to being able to approach God? You want to go back to that, to holding an iPad in the courtyard as the high priest goes in on your behalf? Or would you rather go in and see the king yourself? They needed to be reminded again that their high priest reigns as King, and though he is this majestic and glorious king, still yet he grants sinners access into his presence. The Hebrews needed this reminder. And they could have used a copy of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, I think, 
Because question 26 in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is answered this way. The question is, how does Christ execute the office of a king? The answer is, Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. As the king who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, Jesus subdues us to himself. He has conquered and captured our hearts because of his great love for us. And we are now in union with him. And the spirit applies the benefits of Jesus' work to our life. And now he rules over us and he defends us. He restrains and he conquers his and our enemies. In other words... Jesus is victorious. He's the victorious king. And that's something that the persecuted Hebrews needed to hear. And I suspect that it's something we'll need to be reminded of if persecution comes our way. I suspect that we even need to hear it again today. But the Hebrews were content to FaceTime Jesus. The iPad version of Jesus was enough for them. Instead of running to the throne of grace to receive grace and mercy, they wanted to Skype with Jesus. They actually wanted to return to the copies. And the copy is never as good as the original. And that's exactly what the preacher says next. Look at verse 2. Yes, we're finally getting to verse 2. That was all verse 1. He says, he's a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he, Jesus, were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is... Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Jesus is better because he doesn't serve in an earthly tabernacle or an earthly temple. He serves as high priest in heaven itself. The old covenant priests, they were appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. But the difference with Jesus is that he offers himself as the gift and the sacrifice. And he does that in heaven. Jesus could not do that on earth. He couldn't be a priest on the earth because he wasn't from the line of Levi. He's from the line of Judah. So he couldn't serve as a priest during his incarnation. But he serves somewhere no other old covenant covenant priest could ever serve. He serves in heaven itself. The old covenant priests were first served They first served in the tabernacle and then the temple. And then Moses built the tabernacle based on what he received from the Lord on Mount Sinai. And in Exodus 25, God descended down, Yahweh descended down on Mount Sinai and gave Moses the blueprints for making the tabernacle. And it was patterned after the heavenly sanctuary. Not that heaven itself is exactly like the tabernacle or exactly like the temple that Solomon built. The tabernacle and the temple were just copies and shadows of heavenly realities. The earthly tabernacle does not necessarily physically depict heaven. Rather, its elements symbolize 
the reality of Christ's ministry to us as our resurrected high priest. The pattern that Moses received from the Lord symbolized what would take place with the high priestly ministry of Jesus. And yet, the Hebrews wanted to return to these shadows, to return to these copies, to return to these patterns. They had the reality in Jesus. They had the real thing, but they wanted to go back to the copy. I mean, think about this. They wanted the copy and not the original. Who chooses a copy over the original? Who would you rather see in concert if you were still alive? Elvis or an Elvis impersonator? You would choose Elvis. What would you rather own, an original Picasso painting or a copy? You'd take the original Picasso. Now, don't tell me that you don't get his art and understand his art and that you wouldn't want Picasso's art, and so therefore you would just turn it down because you would not refuse a Picasso original, and here's why. You would take the Picasso original painting, the one that you claim to hate, and then you'd sell it for $30 million. So, of course, you would take the original because it has more value. It's the real thing. Who would you rather FaceTime? Would you rather FaceTime with your grandkids? Or have your grandkids live down the street from you so you could see them all the time? Who would you rather have? A FaceTime version of your spouse who's serving overseas in the military? Or your spouse who sleeps in bed next to you in your home? Of course you would want the real thing. The Hebrews wanted to go back to the copy. They had lost their awe of God. They forgot what the preacher says in verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Jesus is better because his ministry does not function like the old covenant which is, he's referring to the Mosaic Covenant that was established at Mount Sinai when the law was given. The Old Covenant was established on law. It was based on law. It was based on do this and live. If you do this, you'll be blessed. If you don't, you'll be cursed. It was all based on do this and live. Do this and be blessed. It was all, you shall do this, you shall not do this, you shall do this. But Jesus ushers in the new covenant, and it is better because it is enacted on better promises. It is not enacted on do this and live. It's actually enacted on the better promises of it is finished. It's done. It's not do. He's saying it's not do. It's done. It is enacted on the better promises of God saying, I will. Not you shall, but I will. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. And so the high priestly ministry of Jesus is better because it is enacted on the gospel, on gospel promises. It is not enacted on law. And that's exactly what the Hebrews were being pressured to return to, being pressured by their friends and family to return to what they knew, to return to the law, to be justified, to return to the law in order to recover their awe. Understand this, Grace. You can't get awe by going to the law. You can't get your awe back by returning to the law. You can't get awe by going to the law. Make no mistake about it, though. The law is good. God's law is good. It comes from God. How can it not be good? It's a reflection of his moral character. 
but it was never designed to give you your awe back. The law reveals your sin. It reveals your need of a Savior. So is the law good? Yes, absolutely, because it comes from God. As Paul says in Romans 3.13, we uphold the law. 3.31, we uphold the law, but we let the law do what it was supposed to do, which is expose us as sinners so that we would see our need of a Savior, and then we let the gospel do what it's supposed to do. Only the gospel can give you your awe back. The law simply cannot do that. Think about it. What set of rules could ever deliver us from our slavery to sin and self? What set of laws can capture our hearts and restore our worship and restore our amazement and restore our wonder and awe of Jesus? What the law does is God's holy, righteous law. It just reveals that we've lost our awe of God. It just reveals that we've lost our awe and wonder of Jesus. The Hebrews clearly lost their awe of Jesus, and they wanted to get it back by returning to the law. The Hebrews were basically printing up bumper stickers and t-shirts that said, Moses and Aaron, 2016, make Sinai great again. That's what they were doing. Let's go back. Let's make Sinai great again. They wanted to leave Jesus and return to Moses, but you can't go back to Mount Sinai once you've been to Mount Calvary. Jesus climbed up Mount Calvary so that we wouldn't go back and try to climb up to the top of Mount Sinai, trying hard to keep the law and earn our way. You can't go back to Sinai once you've been to Calvary. But we all do this, don't we? Functionally, this is how we all live our lives with God. We all have a tendency to return to the law for justification. We all have a tendency to turn our relationship with God into a business deal. We all have a tendency to turn our relationship with God into some sort of business transaction. Here's an illustration from pop culture that illustrates our tendency to turn our relationship with God into a business deal. See, grace makes us uncomfortable, and so we easily shift into trying to earn it. Here's an example from your TV sets. I've only seen bits and pieces of this show, but I think I kind of know who the characters are just based on the commercials that I've seen. I've never seen an episode of this. But there's a scene on the Big Bang Theory, if any of you watch that show, that I read in a devotional this week that illustrates just how hard it is to receive good gifts, just how hard it is to receive gifts from God. On an episode of the TV show, The Big Bang Theory, this devotional reads, Sheldon discovers that Penny has gotten him a Christmas present. Angered, he reminds Penny that the foundation of gift giving is reciprocity and that she hasn't given him a gift, she's given him an obligation. He says now he has to go out and purchase for her a gift of commensurate value and representing the same perceived level of friendship as that represented by the gift she's given to him. So his solution is to purchase three gift baskets of various sizes of these bath products. His plan is to see what her gift to him is, then to excuse himself from the room and to give her the appropriate gift basket and then return the other two baskets to the store. What happens, though, is that Penny knows, apparently, that Sheldon is a a Trekkie. He loves Star Trek, 
Big Bang Theory fans, is this correct? Okay. And so Penny has gotten Sheldon a napkin that Leonard Nimoy, Spock, has used and autographed. So Sheldon notes that he now not only has Nimoy's signature, he has his DNA. After excusing himself, Sheldon returns with all three gift baskets, barely able to carry the weight, and he says, I know, I know, it's not enough. And that's the problem, isn't it? We don't know how to react when we get really good gifts. When the gift is that good, no response is good enough. Certainly a plain thank you won't cut it. There's no bath product cornucopia that can balance the scales when Leonard Nimoy's DNA is on the other side, and there doesn't seem to be an adequate response when Jesus' death for our sins holds that place either. Many of us Christians spend our lives trying to reciprocate for Jesus' gift to adequately say thank you. But if we turn a big enough gift into an obligation, we are crushed by it. Let's acknowledge from the beginning then that this is a gift that tips the scales forever. Let's treat the gift like a child would, with excitement and joy, and go play, remembering that even our most heartfelt gratitude is not commensurate with his life-giving gift, liberating us from the impossible burden of repayment. We could never repay Jesus for what he has done for us. There's no gift that we could give to match his matchless love for us. No rule-keeping will do it. No amount of law-keeping will do it. It just can't be matched. Jesus is supposed to be received like a child receives a gift. We should receive him with excitement and joy and then go play. Will you receive Jesus today? Will you repent of your sins and trust in his life, death, and resurrection? See, sometimes in the Christian life, we start to settle for counterfeits. And before you know it, we're okay FaceTiming Jesus. So we FaceTime Jesus by not spending time with him in his word. Our prayer just becomes just FaceTiming Jesus, kind of keeping him on the perimeter of our life. I know you're there, I can see you, but there's not this intimacy. Our giving gets reduced, our serving gets reduced to just kind of FaceTiming Jesus. I don't want us to be a church that would rather FaceTime Jesus than really spend time with him, getting to know him. I don't want us to be a church that merely knows a lot about Jesus, that just simply FaceTimes him, that doesn't really want to be with him. And if we find ourselves in that place, it just means that we lost our awe of him. We lost our wonder of him. And if that's you, if you've lost joy and excitement and that ability to receive the gift and then to just go play with joy, then let me encourage you to pray with me again. Don't let me lose my wonder. Ask God to open your eyes again this morning to see the beauty of his son. Here's the bottom line. You will serve whatever has your greatest awe. Are you mad at someone in your life and that's captivated you? That's what you're serving because it has your greatest wonder and awe and astonishment. Angry about church leadership? That's what you're worshiping and serving. Angry about your boss, your neighbor, worried, stressed? You will serve whatever it is that has your greatest awe. When you're smitten with Jesus, though, it changes everything. It changes your giving, your praying, your serving, etc. 
but it's so easy to lose sight of him, isn't it? That's why we need to hit refresh on this often. We need to get recalibrated often. That's what we want to do here every Sunday, to get recalibrated with the gospel, because on any given week, people drag themselves in here, and they have lost their awe and their wonder of Jesus. It's just so easy in the Christian life to fall back to FaceTiming Jesus and keeping him on the perimeter of our life and just going through the motions, kind of acknowledging, I know you're over there. I need you, yeah. But one day, you know what? There won't be this ebb and flow that we all experience every day, every week in our lives. One day, there, the ebb and the, and the flow will go away. One day, we will be totally smitten with Jesus. Isaiah says that in Isaiah 35.10. He says, And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Alec Motier says this about Isaiah 35.10. Everything that made the journey a sad experience will take to its legs. Every unalloyed delight that slipped like soap out of the pilgrim's grasp will finally be possessed. That's the better promise. Is that right now, uh, this joy and this wonder and this awe of Jesus is like soap that slips through your hand. Sometimes you got it, sometimes it slips out. And he says, one day our joy is going to take legs and it's going to run. And we'll have it forever. That is the better promise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love for us. Lord, please, we pray, don't let us lose our wonder. Oh, God, don't let it slip out of our hands. It does. It will. But we pray collectively as a church this morning, don't let us lose our wonder of your son. May the gospel never become old hat to us, just something we've heard. May we never tire of hearing it, God. We need it every week, God. Would you cause us by the power of the Spirit this morning to see the beauty of your son, the victorious king who is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Do it for our joy, for our wonder, for our awe, and do it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.